I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The voice you're hearing is that of Leo Tolstoy, Russia's greatest novelist. In the early 1900s, he made a series of recordings on a phonogram. The device was a gift from its inventor, Thomas Edison. It's strange to picture this nearly 80-year-old literary giant with his long beard and his piercing gaze in his family estate in the Russian countryside, experimenting with a shiny gadget from the New World. But Tolstoy was no technophobe. He was using the phonogram in a very modern way as a means of capturing his immediate response to something which had profoundly affected him. A voice memo, if you like. Every day, so many death sentences, so many executions, he says. It was May 1908, and Tolstoy had just read a newspaper report about the hanging of 12 peasants in the city of Kherson, which was then part of the Russian Empire. The death penalty had been rarely applied in Russia in the previous 150 years. But now, reports of executions were coming in on an almost daily basis, as the state tried to quash the civil unrest that had erupted after the first revolution in 1905. <laughs> We can't live like this. We can't live like this, Tolstoy says. You can hear the emotion in his voice. We're told that soon after this, he began to sob and couldn't continue the recording. Several weeks later, Tolstoy wrote up his thoughts on the executions in an essay called I Can't Be Silent. As in his novels, it's the small details that stay with you. He describes how the executioners in Kherson soak the nooses in soapy water so the rope can tighten more effectively, and how a doctor inspects the corpses to check that the business has been done properly. Tolstoy concluded his essay by saying that if people were being killed in order to prop up his comfortable life, his spacious room and his dinner, then he wants to be out of the system rather than be complicit in it. Put me in jail, or better still, push me to off the bench so that by the weight of my own body I may tighten the well-soaked noose round my old throat, he wrote. I can't live like this, and I won't. It is one of his uh, very last statements not only about the death penalty but also about the legitimacy of the state as an institution, revolution and violence in general. 
Andrei Zorin is a professor of Russian at Oxford University and one of the world's leading authorities on Tolstoy. The main thrust of Tolstoy's argument throughout his life was violence. What makes violence possible and why people murder each other. Being a very young man, he went to the war to see it by his own eyes. And finally, after decades of thought about this, yeah, he came to the conclusion that it is possible because of the so-called distribution of responsibility. That's when a ruler separates himself from the physical act of killing, while the executioner claims to be just following orders. The rulers, the czars, the presidents, or whoever above us, they don't think about actual human beings who are going to be killed or kill. They think about abstractions, about that's my duty as the leader. In another writer's hands, and in another country, an essay like I Can't Be Silent would be no more than history. But not with Tolstoy, and not in Russia. When war broke out a year ago, his writings were quoted by journalists, artists and opposition figures in the press and widely circulated on social media. As Russian missiles struck Kiev, Odessa and Kherson, there were grim jokes about renaming his most famous novel to Special Military Operation and Peace. Tellingly, the police also started to arrest people who quoted him on placards or even stood holding copies of his books in the street. To a nation undergoing a moral catastrophe, the old man offered a point of certainty. He was clearly the strongest voice in this feeling that the war is the thing which can have no justification whatsoever. That the war under the nationalist or imperialist or whichever slogans is intolerable, and more than that, he also offered some disarmingly simple advice. He did not believe in the political protest. He believed only in the personal moral effort. And he said that the only idea is not to participate. You don't put military uniform. You don't take an oath. You do not participate in violence and killing each other. Whatever happens, just say no. Escape in any possible way. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky, from The Economist. This is Next Year in Moscow, Episode 5, Through the Forest. It's the greatest shame of my life but I didn't ever expect uh, that I will be so angry. Grigory Sverdlin is a tall, wiry man with close-cropped hair and a determined gaze. He's from St. Petersburg, but for the last year he's been living in exile in Georgia. I think in Russian language. I'm raised on Russian culture and my country started this awful war, and my country day after day kills innocent people. Yeah, I think that uh, 
this shame will be with us for the rest of our lives. Since moving to Tbilisi, Grigori has chosen to channel his feelings about Putin's war into something unusual and courageous. His story offers clues not just to how Russia found itself on its current trajectory, but also how it might be possible to change direction. And it begins in the early 2000s. Grigori had just finished university then and found himself on the right side of the booming Russian economy. He was making good money and living in a big apartment in the historic part of St. Petersburg. But something was missing from his life. So in 2003, he started volunteering with a homeless charity called Nachleshka, which means shelter. Once a week in the evening, I took a ride in the night bus and it was really kind of magic because I remember this feeling when you come to the first stop. Every weekday at 5 p.m., a few volunteers would jump into a van, collect surplus food from restaurants and cafes in St. Petersburg, and then distribute it to homeless people at stations across the city. Per evening it was 150, sometimes 200 people. We provided them food and we provided them just conversations. So we saw humans in them and it was, I think, for the people it was as important as the food. If the night bus was improving the lives of the homeless people it served, it was also having a profound effect on Grigori. I remember that sometimes I was tired and why I could go meet with my girlfriend or I could go home to just read a book, but I have to go. I already listed to be a volunteer this evening. And then after this four hours, uh, I was coming back somehow being happier than I was coming to the night bus. And how this magic works, I don't know till now. After many, many years working in the organization, but the magic is still there. This magic was rare in the 90s and early 2000s. After nearly seven decades of the Soviet experiment, Russians embraced cutthroat capitalism, consumption and individualism with a fervor that made Western countries almost look socialist by comparison. The country was atomized. Everyone was fighting for themselves. Grigori could see the symptoms of this on the street. He often worked with orphans, elderly people and the victims of fraud. Nachleshka estimated that 60,000 people were sleeping rough in St. Petersburg by 2014 and that there were up to 1.5 million homeless people. That's 1% of the Russian population, countrywide. Some would die of hypothermia in the winter, hidden by the snow. Their bodies, revealed by the spring thaw, were called snowdrops. And to many Russians, these people might as well have been invisible. Homelessness had been illegal in the USSR, which preferred to sweep its destitute people well out of sight and the stigma lingered on. But in the 2010s, the old attitude began to shift. The generation who were children at the fall of the Soviet Union were then coming of age, hitting their 20s and 30s. These younger Russians wanted more than material goods. They didn't share the cynicism of their parents, and they were more mindful of the world outside their homes. We were trying to increased temperature outside of our comfortable flats. In 2010, 
Grigori quit his desk job and took up a post as director of the charity. And it began to expand. They opened new branches in Moscow and elsewhere, and more than double the number of people they were helping. And year after year, slowly, we, I think, succeed a little bit to increase this temperature because people started to trust each other, people started to donate to charity. This idea of charity started to be in trend. With most other forms of public activity banned, charities and volunteering were becoming a form of activism. A survey showed that nearly 40% of young Russians had been involved in some volunteering. About 50% donated money to charities. Crucially, all of Shelter's money was coming from private donations rather than the state. It was donations from people from all over Russia, small sums like $10, $20, and we collected more than $2 million per year, which is quite a lot for Russian charity. And we've became with such unpopular topic as helping homeless. It's not helping children in need. We became one of the biggest and most famous organizations in Russia. Enlightenment projects were also booming. Open lectures on subjects such as the return of ethics and public lies were packed. Tolstoy was in vogue. You could see it, especially in larger cities, that people start not to live just for themselves, but to look around and to help to those who need help. Russian society was rapidly modernizing, emerging from the cold and forming itself into a nation. And the attitude of the public towards the state was also changing fast. Younger citizens saw the state as a service, not a cult, and rejected fear as the basis of their relationship with it. They favored human rights and freedom of speech over the interests of the fatherland, and they were less reliant on the state than the older generation. To a democratic government, this might have been a cause for celebration, but to the Kremlin, it was a warning bell. In the rulebook of the KGB, people were to be controlled, not trusted. Any grassroots movement, any form of solidarity independent of the state, was considered a threat to its dominance. And threats had to be neutralized. When something like Grigori's charity grew in size and prominence, the state took notice. The first move would be to try and bring them into the fold. I remember I was invited to the deputy governor of St. Petersburg, quite bright lady, and we were studying in the same university, and it it was really long talk, more than one hour. This was in 2017. Grigori was running Nachleshka. He had come to talk about the rising number of homeless deaths on the streets of St. Petersburg. The official, Olga Kazanska, listened intently. She seemed sympathetic. But in the end, I understand that the only reason I was invited was that my organization was talking loudly about how many people dies on the street. We made this problem, these statistics really visible. 
And that was the reason for invitation, because in the end of the meeting, she said that we should uh, lower our voice, other way she will drive over me on the tank. How did she say it in Russian? Ведите себя потише, или я вас на танке перееду. So be quiet or I'll run you over with a tank. Yeah, exactly. As Putin's regime was becoming more repressive, the space for independent humanitarian work was shrinking. We were feeling this uh, at least last 10 years. It was more and more risky and dangerous to be independent. And you could feel it being journalist in Russia, you could feel it doing charity in Russia. So it was a big pressure, and this pressure was growing and growing year after year. And five years after that meeting in St. Petersburg, on the 24th of February of last year, real tanks rolled into Ukraine. Grigory fell crushed. These bastards started this war, and this temperature went down, I don't know, 300 degrees, maybe lower than ever at least for the last, I don't know, 70 years. He knew that he wouldn't be able to keep silent about the war and that the charity would be endangered by having a director who spoke out against it. So he loaded up his car, said goodbye to his home and made his way to the border with Estonia. He was not in a rush to get anywhere. After driving through Eastern Europe, he stopped in Vienna to visit a friend, a schoolteacher, who invited him to talk to a class at her school. These teenagers asked him, why did Putin start this war? He thought back over the last 10 years and gave them an answer. The reason this war started was that Putin and his crew, they understood that time is working against them because new generation is not interested in TV propaganda. People, especially young and educated people, it's really awkward for them to think that Russia is uh, in circle of enemies and that United States want to conquer us. It's so last season, all of it. It's fairy tales from Putin's childhood. Uh, it's not interesting for 20, 30, 40 years old people. I think he understood this and he needed to do something. And uh, yeah, well, he did. Hello, I'm Zanny Minton Meadows, Editor-in-Chief of The Economist. I'd like to tell you about the rest of our coverage of the war in Ukraine. Ever since Vladimir Putin ordered the full-scale invasion, we've been reporting from the heart of this war. A year on, its outcome remains uncertain, and The Economist's correspondents continue to bring unparalleled analysis of what the war means for Ukraine and for the world. Our defense experts explain the dynamics on the battlefield. Our business and finance writers examine what the war means for energy markets and the global economy. 
from big-picture geopolitical analysis to documenting personal stories of courage and resilience, my colleagues have been doing extraordinary work. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. You make this possible. Otherwise, for access to all our journalism and to join exclusive events with Arkady and others on our team, visit economist.com slash Moscow Offer. The link is in the notes for this podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One morning last year, Dmitry Likin was in Zagreb, Croatia, rushing to catch a plane back to Moscow. And as usually it happens at the morning when you're late to plane, you are just in a hurry and you see nothing. Likin is a notable figure in the world of Russian state media. For 24 years, he was head of design at Channel One, the Kremlin's main TV network, which spreads its propaganda across the country's 11 time zones. So I gave a call to Moscow to my wife and said that, okay, everything is fine. I'll be at home at dinner. And silence. She said, what? You know, nothing? Said, this was on the 24th, yes, actually. Yes, the 24th of the morning. And I said, what, nothing, what happened? She says, the war. So, it starts for me like that. Given the importance of this channel to Putin's war, it's striking that someone so high up there would have received no hint that something big was about to happen. But that's not the most surprising thing Likin told me. When you came home, did you turn on television? Uh, I don't have television at home. You don't have television at home? So I never watched it. The man who was responsible for the entire visual identity of Russia's main propaganda channel doesn't own a television. And when he watched the programming at work, he would take an unusual step. In every country, in every hotel, the first thing I do, I'm switching on the plasma, of course. But I never switch on the sound. As soon as I'm she, she, she head of design. So my main target of my job was to make difference between radio and television. The picture the, on the thing which interested me. Likin is not one of the flinty-eyed former KGB men or suited officials you often see around Putin. Instead, he is soft-spoken and gentle, with long dark hair. He looks like an architect. In fact, he is one. As well as his work at Channel One, he was also responsible for some of the most striking redesign and renovation projects in Moscow, parks and neighborhoods that I used to enjoy visiting when I was living in the city. But speaking to him, I also felt like one of us was going mad. It was as though we lived in parallel realities. And my world was every bit as strange to him as his world was to me. 
At one point, I mentioned Anna Politkovskaya, the journalist who had uncovered worrying allegations about the Nord Ost theatre siege. I remember this family. I remember that was something. She was a journalist. She was a journalist, but I don't remember what happened. She got murdered. She was writing about Chechnya. Maybe, but... Alexei Navalny, the most consequential opposition politician in a generation, also came up. Likin told me in Russian, look, he is a political Yurodivy, a holy fool, and can't be taken seriously as a political force. Perhaps oddest of all was when I brought up Memorial, an organization which has been documenting the crimes of the state, both in Soviet and modern times. To me, this is one of the country's most important institutions. To Likin, who lived on the same street as Memorial, their work was barely a memory. To be honest, I don't know what you mean. I know that it's kind of a organization, humanitarian one, one of thousands. But I do not have precise idea what are they doing. Well, there were organizations that, that was uh, dealing with the crimes of Stalinism. Maybe. And then the human rights abuses. Maybe. But you are talking in such a way that I feel shame that Did as if I should know about that from every second of my you life. Did, you, but you, you didn't. Maybe. What was not on television didn't exist. And what didn't exist could be created with cameras, special effects and imagination. Few people knew this better than Likin's former boss, Konstantin Ernst. Ernst, a Hollywood-obsessed film producer, is the head of Channel One and one of the most powerful people in Russia. He produced not just blockbusters, but also some of the biggest spectacles of Putin's era, the president's lavish inaugurations, the opening of the Sochi Winter Olympics, and ultimately, the war in Ukraine. Aided by Likin and a team of talented creatives, Ernst transformed state television from a drab Soviet-era sedative into a throbbing hallucinogenic. He's still excited here. <laughs> Is that what he thinks he's making, a film? Yes, but in nature. But in nature. I wanted to ask Likin about one news item in particular. In the summer of 2014, as Russia attacked Ukraine for the first time, Channel One interviewed a Ukrainian woman who told a hair-raising story. She was in Slovyansk, a small city in the east of Ukraine, and claimed to have witnessed the crucifixion of a three-year-old boy. Sitting across from a reporter, the woman explained how, in Lenin Square, in the center of town, Ukrainian Nazis took a little boy in his underwear, nailed him to a plank, and made him suffer for an hour before he died. 
It was chilling stuff. It was also completely fabricated. There is no Lenin Square in the center of Slavyansk. Journalists couldn't find any witnesses of the crime, and the woman turned out to be the wife of a former riot police officer. Most people at Channel 1 knew the story was a fake and shrugged it off. When I asked Likin about it, he dismissed the whole thing as no more than a journalistic cock-up, and he figured the audience would see through it anyway. I really think that for many people, especially people with Soviet background, it's also a great difference between real life and so-called official life. They say something by TV, they say something by radio, it's nothing serious. It's not connected with real life. So, and especially quality of execution, it's obviously shows you that it's something absolutely fake. So it seems to me that nobody took it seriously. Besides, Likin told me in Russian, he was merely a field soldier, a designer, not a thinker or journalist. It's the job of journalists to comprehend things, he said. His job was to make things. Distribution of responsibility. But nearly eight years later, on February 24th, 2022, the things that were not his job to comprehend finally caught up with Likin. I have a very clever wife. <laughs> She's smart and ironic. And maybe next morning she asked me, what do you think, darling? Just say it into words, in black or white. Are we in heaven or are we in hell? I said that definitely we are not in heaven. Likin could no longer claim to be improving things within Putin's Russia. The channel he worked for was now fully engaged in prosecuting a war. Within days, he had resigned and left the country. I spoke to him in Israel, where he was living in exile. After a quarter of a century inside the control room of Russian state TV, Likin is tuned to an unusual wavelength. I asked him to explain how Putin and Ernst are thinking about this war. They are fascinated by the idea of scale. So it's not so important what's democracy, theocracy, autocracy. No, no, it's just details. So the most important thing is what happens. The size of the challenge. Once you understand this element of Putin's thinking, he told me, everything else falls into place. It's important to say that the very scale of the victims from strange point of view testifies to the greatness of the plan. So the more deadly the war, the bigger scale the war, the more gratifying it is? I can imagine this point of view. Sitting under the vaulted ceilings of the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin is conversing with Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible and Joseph Stalin, convinced that, like them, he too is changing the order of the world. It's not a war against Ukraine. It's a war against the collective West, and it's, he's talking about that since 2007. It's not a war against Ukraine. Unfortunately, Ukraine just a place. The most easy place for his ambition. But Ukraine itself is not the target. He's just changing the map of the world. And hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians 
but also Russians are dying, and that doesn't matter. It's a price. It's a price. And in Russia, life is a devalued currency. In April of last year, Grigory reached the end of his road trip and settled in Tbilisi. It wasn't a happy time. The first a few months after the war started, I definitely I was in depression and I was thinking that it's not my country anymore and I don't want to have anything ever common with this country. But then you realize that you won't ever have another childhood, another adult life. We got what we got. What made him depressed was not just the loss of his home or his beloved job, but that his country was killing innocent people in his name. And on the 21st of September, things got worse. Сегодняшний день, наверное, запомнят все мобилизацию, которую в России так боялись с начала войны объявлена. Теперь все Having promised that only a professional army would fight in his limited special military operation, Putin now declared that some extra 300,000 men would be drafted. In this awful crime, 21st of September, it was uh, it was really hard. It felt like 2nd 24th of February. Grigory's countrymen were being mobilized to kill. For many Russians, this was the moment that brought the war home. People were being grabbed off the streets. Protests broke out in Moscow and other cities. There were few volunteers, and it's estimated that 350,000 people fled from mobilization. One border checkpoint in the mountains between Russia and Georgia, the queue of vehicles waiting to cross was over 20 kilometers long. But the majority of military-aged men didn't have the option or the means of escape. Up to half a million extra recruits went to war. For Grigori, it was a disturbing thought. And uh, two, three days I was... uh in shock, I was really stressed, but then I wanted to do something, I wanted to strike back. And the best way to stop a war, as Tolstoy argued, is to actively refuse to participate in it. In Russia, escape is the main form of protest. And so the idea was obvious, I should do something to help Russian people who don't want to shoot to Ukrainians, and I announced, I think it was something like 24th or 25th of September, I announced that I will do new organization, Diditilesem. He called it Go Through the Forest. The phrase has a second meaning in Russian. Fuck off, fuck, fuck yourself, yeah, and it's uh, obviously it was what we all had in mind. Its purpose is to help as many Russians as possible to dodge the draft, or, if they are already enlisted, to desert from the army. So the Russian state obviously is a criminal, and we will not obey laws of this criminal. Mm-hmm. 
As soon as he announced his idea online, the messages started to flood in. And I haven't ever seen anything like this. So many people were writing me and were helping me for free. Designers, IT specialists, just volunteers who were ready to do anything. And within just five days, we had more than 300 volunteers who were ready to consult all of the people asking for help. What was unexpected and reassuring for Grigori was that the offers of support went far beyond IT help, and they came from all over Russia. Just first days of existing of the organization, I started to receive messages that I live close to Kazakh border, I live close to Mongolian border, and uh, I'm ready to take with me a few people every month and go through the border illegally. And I was really touched because it's ordinary people. They don't want money for this. They understand the dangers, but still they want to help. It's their way of striking back. I guess one thing that Russia is not short of is long borders and forests, so... Exactly, and uh, deserts and all other types of terrains. So not all border is guarded and so people can just, if they know the way, it's not a, it's a hole in the fence. Exactly. In order to protect his operation, Grigori hasn't been able to share the precise details of how and where they get people out of the country. But he told us this story. So we have a contact and we write that we have two, three, four people. Usually we, we are trying to collect them. So there is a time when the smuggler meets these people on the gas station close to the Russian border and he has five, six different routes. He goes to the border as close as he can get by car and then it's one hour and a half by foot, crossing small river as well, but it's just till... Um, uh, up to your knee. Up to your knee, yeah, up to your knee. So it's not hard to cross this river. Then literally through the forest. And on the other side, there is also his partner with a car. He picks up these people and the first smuggler, and that's it. So far, go through the forest has helped around 5,000 people, and Grigori estimates that it has deprived the Russian army of at least 500 men. That's a battalion. And it's absolutely clear that now this war is not popular in Russia. There are many people who are not ready to resist, but they don't support this war as well. To Grigori, Russia's president has already lost the war. Putin made his biggest mistake, and I think that his days are numbered. I think that within one or two years he will fall. But Grigori is too honest to suggest that this will be the end of the struggle. I think after Putin we will have quite hard time and kind of civil war is 
also one of the possibilities, unfortunately. I think next at least 10 years in Russia will be quite dark times. It's my optimistic view, I would say. It's a dark picture, but if you look close enough, you can find a glimmer of light. Because the reasons why Putin went to war are also reasons to be hopeful about a different kind of Russia. Individual acts of empathy and kindness in the face of a violent state. Exactly as Tolstoy prescribed. In our next episode, the struggle for hearts and minds continues. All the journalists, they left the country without any problems. No one was arrested or detained or or anything. So I think they wanted us to leave the country. And uh, now we can say that we were played. Next Year in Moscow is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Barakovska, with help from Lika Kremer and Libo Libo Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Schmueli. Our sound design is by Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ang. Our executive producer is John Shields. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.